I'm, I'm glad to be here to deliver this lesson because I want it off my chest. Um, when I was 23 years old, I worked for the Social Security Administration here in Memphis, Tennessee. And I worked with a woman named Shirley. And I remember two things about Shirley. She had grown up on a farm. And she had a mother who had a rule about pies. See, John Dawson's already talked about pie, and I just can't believe it. It's, I must be in the right vein. But she would only cut a pie into four pieces. And so when I thought about that woman who served everyone a fourth of a pie, I immediately took her for my role model. <laughs> now, I, I love pie. And... There's only one kind of pie that I don't like, and that's the kind of pie we're going to talk about today. Have you heard of humble pie? <laughs> All my life, I've heard the expression that whenever you've done something wrong in word or deed or attitude, you've got to go and confess and ask forgiveness, and that's called eating humble pie, and that makes you humble. Now... You see, it is true that most every sin is rooted in pride, and most every virtue is rooted in humility. And because we tend toward pride, we need to grasp onto anything that will make us humble. And James 4, 1 through 10 is something to grasp onto. James encourages us to humble ourselves. That's where he's going in these verses. And then he gives us some commands for how to do that. So today we're going to look at Eat Humble Pie. And in honor of Shirley's mother, my role model, I've cut it into four pieces. And so they are admit our sin, accept God's grace, allow God's rule, and advance in Christ-likeness. So grab your fork, and at this point I was going to say, let's eat up. But in view of the lowly nature of humility, I'm going to say, let's chow down. Okay. <laughs> so the first thing we're going to look at is admit our sin. And that seems like a simple thing, but that's very hard for me to do. And last week in chapter 3, James was talking about worldly wisdom, and here in chapter 4, we're seeing the continuation of some sin that's caused problems in the churches. And worldly wisdom seems to have been one of the factors. And he mentions three sins, and these sins still pervade our churches today. So let's examine them just a little bit. The first one is conflict. Now, we need to be willing to have conflict if truth is at stake. We never tolerate any sort of false gospel, but that's not what their conflict was about. This was selfish conflict. They wanted to fulfill selfish desires. They were envious. They possibly wanted prominence, position, or power. And so James uses really strong words with this conflict. He calls it wars, fightings. And that's because when there are relationship problems among believers, God takes this seriously. 
In John 17, Jesus prayed that we would be one. He said, um, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, that's their first sin. Their second sin is prayerlessness. I've heard it said that most of our horizontal problems are really vertical problems. We've not gotten God's mind on our situations, and they weren't praying about these things. And if they did pray, they prayed for God to supply the lust of their hearts. Now, God always hears prayer, but sometimes he's too good and too wise to give us what we ask for if it's not a good thing for us. So their prayer channel was blocked by sin. And then their third sin is worldliness. They had made a friendship from the, uh, with the world. Now, I read a long, long time ago something that helped me about the book of James. And back in chapter 1, in verses 26 and 27, James mentions three characteristics of pure religion. They are a tame tongue, a bridal tongue. Visiting orphans and widows are the marginalized of society and keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Now, those three things that typify pure religion, James goes back to them over and over and over and over. And so I kind of want to hit worldliness a little bit today because I think for a long time ago, for a long time, I didn't understand what it meant. Um, first of all, we know that the Greek word for world is cosmos, and it's the world system. It's alienated from God, and it's ruled by Satan. So what is worldliness? You know, I used to think that I was a really modest dresser until an Amish woman came to my house. And I thought, ooh, I bet I look pretty worldly. And then we taught these lessons in Nepal to women who lived in remote villages in the Himalayas and had their babies strapped on their backs. What is worldliness? It just can't be a list of do's and don'ts. It can't be outward things. Worldliness is a heart condition. When I was in India, I asked my translator, a young woman named Maggie, Maggie, what does worldliness mean to you? And she said, Sister Mary, worldliness is anything that draws our hearts away from God. Now that definition works for me. Whenever I feel my heart being drawn away from being satisfied in God, when I find myself grasping worldly temporal things and trying to take satisfaction in them, or whenever I find myself going along with a worldly trend that's not a godly trend, then I've become worldly. I've become an enemy of God, and I've become an adulteress to my God, my heavenly husband. The solution is not to separate from the world. 
Also in John 17, Jesus said, I'm leaving my own here in the world that we could witness to the world, that we could be salt and light in the world. So let me give you an example of the Christian in the world. I, um, I tried to cut this out. Um, do, do you know what this is? I thought, it, I thought it might look like a commercial for teeth whitening. But this, who thinks, who knows what this is? Boat, thank you. It's a boat. Okay. And I have a picture. I have another picture of a boat up there. Do I? Yeah. Okay. Just in, um, this is our, our recent Sunday school class trip. We went, went canoeing on the Ghost River. And someone sent us this picture. And I think they were trying to point out who was paddling. <laughs> okay. What is the purpose of a boat? Go in the water. Yeah, yeah. Okay. If a boat never goes into the water, can it fulfill its purpose as a boat? No. So what happens if water gets into the boat? It can sink. Okay. God has commanded us to go into the world, but we cannot wrap our hands and our hearts around empty temporal things. We cannot let water into our boat. We cannot let the world get into us. So, how can we keep ourselves from worldliness? By committing ourselves to godliness. Now, I see, and those are our three sins, and I see an obvious fourth sin, complacency. They had become so comfortable living with these sins, they weren't doing anything about it. And so God stirred up the heart of his servant, James, to come to point out sin in them. You see, we get tolerant of sin in our lives. It's an easy trap to fall into. Sin hurts God. It put Jesus on the cross. It hurts our fellowship with God and with believers. And when God makes us aware of sin, we stop making excuses. We admit our sin, calling it what it is. And that's the first piece of humble pie. Now, the second piece is accept God's grace. When my daddy was coming to Christ, he said, I just don't understand salvation for, by grace. I've never received anything in my life that I didn't have to work for. You see, we don't deserve grace. We can't earn grace. The man who preached here Sunday at First Evan said, we can't achieve it. We can only receive it. So that's humbling. And James mentions three, three things about grace. Now, James, he's pointed out sin. Now he's talking about grace. And then he's going to talk about humility. So three things he says about grace. The first thing is grace is given to us in the Holy Spirit. Now I want to, to look here at verse 5. Um, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. 
I don't know how many times I've read this. I memorized this whole book when I was young. I never, ever, never saw that verse until this time. I, um, this, is, this is not a direct quote. He says, do you think the scripture says in vain? And then he has this in quotes. Well, this is not a direct quote from scripture. James has taken the Old Testament idea of a jealous God, jealous over us, and the New Testament concept that the Holy Spirit indwells us. And he's married these two things to give us this biblical concept. And this verse has just jumped off the page for me this time. I mean, do we... I mean, today, this day, God the thirst third person lives in you. We carry him around with us. And that has just, I don't know, it's just become an amazing thing to me. The Holy Spirit indwells believers and he's yearning jealously. And this is what Carolyn Wynn said about the Holy Spirit in our group last week. He checks he restrains, he convicts, he prompts, he comforts. But we have to humble ourselves to receive his guidance and his direction. We can't shut him out. And we can't do anything on our own. So that's the first thing. The indwelling Holy Spirit today is yearning jealously that you stay faithful to God, that you don't run after the world, and that you pursue holiness in your life. He wants that for us. So the second thing he says about grace, grace will never run out for believers. There's always more. Third thing, grace is for the humble. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, and this verse is found three times in the scripture. God actually sets himself in battle array against the proud. That's what this verse means. So if this wonderful grace is only for the humble, I think I might need to stop and talk about what humility is. So um, the root word for humility comes from low, means low. And I used to think, that if I just ran myself down enough, that I would be humble. And do you know that that's actually pride? Self-degradation, because it's a focus on self and not God. See, self is pride. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's thinking about God more, keeping God in our thoughts. And it's also seeing every other person as more important than I see myself. So humility, to be humble, we try to replace God, get self out. Receive grace, we say, Lord, here I am again in desperate need of you. So we need to admit our sin, accept his grace, 
and we've eaten half of a humble pie. Now, in the third piece, James gives us three commands to help us toward humility, and that is allow God's rule. Now, these commands that James gives us are bookended by humility. God gives grace to the humble, and then he's going to end humble yourself. And they're, they're in order. And so the thing that comes first is submit to God. Submit here is not a passive word. It's a military term, and it means we line up behind our captain, ready to receive his instructions and do his bidding. We surrender our rights, our plans, our time, our pleasures, and our pursuits to him. And God can either take them away or give them back or shuffle them all up. He's God, and he, he gets to choose. Years ago, Marianne Frazier said to me, Honey, you just have to decide who's going to be the boss. And that is so true. Now, as soon as we're serious about obeying God, we find that we have put ourselves in the enemy's firing line. He's going to test us. He's going to tell us it's too hard and too costly to obey God. So the second command... Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. And we've got the armor. We've got specific scripture. We can rally prayer support. We can ask people to keep us accountable. We cry out to God until the enemy flees. And we know that we fight the enemy from a place of victory that was won by Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And then that enables us when the enemy flees, we're able to draw near to God, and he'll draw near to us. The distance between sinful men and holy God was closed by the blood of the cross, and we can now draw near to God. When we draw near to God, we're going to notice more sin in our lives. I mean, we get closer to the light. You heard the example of the man in the raincoat. Didn't look so bad when he put it on in his closet at home, but as he got under the street light, he saw stains and dirt and holes and everything. And that's what happens when we draw near to God. And this is a good thing. It's a good thing. It means spiritual growth when we begin to see sin. And so in the commands 4 through 9... James gives us steps to repentance. Repentance and faith are not once-only lives in a believer. There is a first repentance when we come to Christ, but Christians are lifelong repenters. And sin must continue to break our hearts because it puts, Christ on the cross and grieves the heart of God. And so this is what James says. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, who's the agent there? Who does that? We do. We do, don't we? It's in the command form. 
And so we've got to quit what we're doing and we've got to get to the place where our heart doesn't want any part of that sin. Our heart doesn't agree with it in any way. And then James gives us four commands about mourning our sin. Did you realize he devotes four commands to that? So that's pretty important. And true sorrow for sin should never become mechanical for us. And um, the command, um, this is a a thing that A.W. Tozer said, it is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it that distinguishes the child of God from the empty professor of faith. It is a good thing to mourn our sin, and true repentance will include this. Um, We need to know that we've gone all the way through the mourning and weeping process, and God will tell us when that's complete. And then we flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life and appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus has satisfied God's law. Now, I love this this picture of the king of Nineveh. This is Old Testament, but it's such an unlikely place to find these steps of repentance. This is in Jonah 3, 6 through 9. It said that the king of Nineveh, Jonah had said, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. Here he was. He was the ruler of a wicked, bloodthirsty, pagan nation. And in one day's time, he got all the way to where he sits in this picture, wearing sackcloth and ashes. He got off his throne. He removed his robe. He proclaimed fasting and sackcloth for even the, the people and the animals of his nation. And he said, cry out to God. Cry out mightily to God. And he sat here in the ashes, and he said, turn from your violence, turn from your evil deeds. And God heard. And repentance, true repentance, includes a change in our behavior. It may also include asking someone for forgiveness or making restitution. So, the fourth thing we need to do is to humble ourselves that we might advance in Christ-likeness. Humble yourselves. We're at command 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, when I begin to study about humility, I pulled out these two books. Calvary Road, and Respectable Sins. Now, do these books look like weapons? I mean, these books have the ability to cut and slice and dissect a heart. And Jerry Bridges' book on Respectable Sins, he he says that as Christians we have become so accustomed to living with these sins 
that they're just respectable. We don't even call them sins anymore. And he mentions four that Christians are particularly prone to. Moral self-righteousness, pride in correct doctrine, pride in achievement, pride in an independent spirit. And as I was reading through these books, I became so discouraged. I felt like when I, I went to have my quiet time with the Lord, I just beat myself up for how much pride I had. And I just began to be discouraged. Now, I was falling prey to the wiles of the devil. The devil tries to dump a truckload of sin on us. He just says, you're, you're horrible. And, and he's not specific. We can't do anything about it. And so I finally just put the books away. And I said, Lord, you just got to do pride for me. You got to get rid of it. You've got to humble me. But what does that command say? It says, humble yourselves. And so I wrote this little thing in Calvary Road, and I said, Lord, could you just give me some hints on how to humble myself? <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay. Um, God got really specific with me. And I sat down, and he said, um, this is not an easy thing to confess, <laughs> but I'm going to. Um, he said, Mary, do you remember when you lied to the Germantown policeman? And I had, I had had a wreck. I came up to a four-way stop, and I, and, and I stopped a little bit. And I looked into the intersection, and there was absolutely nothing that I could see. And so I went on into the intersection, and I hit a woman. Thanks be to God Almighty, the woman was not hurt. Um, and I paid the ticket, and I paid for her car, but the policeman said to me, did you make a full and complete stop? I said, yes. And it was a lie. And then the woman said to me, did you make a full and complete stop? Well, I had lied to him. I had to lie to her. And I said, yes, two lies. Now, as soon as those lies were out of my mouth, I knew that I had to confess them because God will never be less than he is. I waited 12 years, 12 years. Two weeks ago, I walked into the Germantown police station and I said, I would like to confess that I lied to the Germantown police. And the man said to me, the officer on duty, he said, have you confessed to God? And I said, oh, yes. But he wanted me to make the confession as wide as the circle of offense. I want to confess to the people I lied to. And he said, well, sit down and tell me about it. And so, um, bottom line, he looked it up, and he said the officer left our department four years ago. 
I can't tell you anything about him or the woman. It's all confidential. But you've been right to confess, and on behalf of the Germantown Police Department, I forgive you. Now, that's where I am right now. It may not be over. But, and I'm going to go back to something about that. I didn't plan to wait 12 years to admit my sin. But I started stuffing it down. And then I honestly began to think that maybe God was just going to give me a pass. But God wants better for his children. Now, y'all, I hate to be a liar. I don't mind being a sinner, but I want to be a better sort of sinner. Do you see? God abhors liars. I hate it so badly. Okay, shall we go on? The second thing, God, God gave me a couple of little teaching clinics. And I was having my two grandchildren that live here, Ezra and Nora, and my granddaughter, Lizzie, five years old in Nebraska, we were doing a FaceTime tea party, and we were sharing poems. Now, I want to share Lizzie's poem with you. It came out of this, this book, um, Gopher Up Your Sleeve. And it's called The Small Rodent Chant. And I'm going to share it for you the way Lizzie shared it. Eve, Eve, I believe there's a gopher up your sleeve. Claire, Claire, I don't care. There's a hamster in your hair. Well, she was laughing uproariously, and I wasn't. Okay, the first thing right off the bat, I thought, uh, I'm Claire. I can take it quite seriously that I need to point out what's wrong with somebody. And then I thought, wait a minute, I'm Eve. Because when someone points out something that's wrong with me, I get really defensive, and I want to turn around, think of something wrong with them. So then I thought about it a little more, and I thought, oh, that's the mode and the beam from Matthew 7, 1 through 5. You see, here she is, a hamster on her head, trying to point out something lesser in someone else. And the reason I was so struck by that is a few weeks before... My husband tempted to point out a flaw in me. And I'm sorry I can't even tell you what it is because he said it in a tone of voice that just was demeaning to me. And so I proceeded to speak to him about his tone of voice in a tone of voice at least three times worse. <laughs> and so when I, I finished my rant, I went out, I had been blowing with the weed blower, and I didn't have on goggles, and a piece of debris flew into my eye. And it was so big, and it hurt so bad. And I said to myself, this feels like a beam. 
And then I got it. And I said, Lord, how did you do this? How did you set this up? How can you be so clear and so convicting and just so current? It was just so clever of God. And so I went in and I said, Hickman, please forgive me for the way I talked to you. And he said, I forgive you. And will you please forgive me for the way I talked to you? And then we hugged each other. And the sweet man went to Walgreens and got me some eye wash. <laughs> now, what, what's going on in the moat and the beam? When we go to the end of that, that passage, it says, after you've removed the beam from your own eye, then go and remove the moat from your brother's eye. That's the point of it. You see, there's this thing about pride. I can see yours, and you can see mine, but we can't see our own. So God, really, it's one of those ways that he made us a body, one of those ways that he made us need each other. He really wants to use us to help one another toward humility. And that's the point of the moat and the beam. Y'all, I'm done with my confession. I just want to tell you that. I, I, I don't have anything else to confess, okay? Now, um, oh, actually, okay, now, um, how do we humble ourselves? God allows the circumstances, and he puts pressure on us, but we have to do the yielding. We have to allow him to do his work of humility in our lives. And if we have submitted to God, we've drawn near, we're walking in lifelong repentance, we will recognize when and how we need to yield to be humbled. Okay, now, meanwhile, back to the Germantown police station. After the man forgave me, he said... We are lied to 50 times a day, every day. And to my knowledge, you're the only person who's ever come in to confess. And I thought, uh-oh. Does this man realize that I could take pride in confessing <laughs> a 12-year-old sin? But I found there was no pride to take. There's no swelling, no welling. God had, he had done it in that moment. He had really humbled me. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to trust that this man is seeing a newly formed Christ-likeness in me. You know, whenever we humble ourselves, God is able to cut a deeper channel in us for the Holy Spirit to flow through. Whenever we humble ourselves, he increases our capacity to take that grace we've been given and give it out to others. Whenever we humble ourselves, we become like 
our Savior, who is meek and humble of heart, and we advance in Christ-likeness. Now, I still don't like humble pie, but I love the benefits. And the best thing that I can hope for this lesson is that we all ask God not to leave us where we are today, but to take us on in humility. Now, on the screen is a poem that captures a longing for true humility. It was written long ago, and I don't know who wrote it. I don't think anyone knows anymore. But if you agree with these words, will you read them with me? And this will be our closing prayer. Oh, to be saved from myself, dear Lord. Oh, to be lost in thee. Oh, that it might be no more I, but Christ who lives in me. Amen.